You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Jamie Ogle is a pre-dawn writer, homeschool mom by day, and a reader by night. Inspired by her fascination with the storied history of faith, she writes historical fiction infused with hope, adventure, and courageous rebels. A Minnesota native, she now lives in Iowa with her husband and their three children, and she can usually be found gardening, beekeeping, and tromping through the woods. Jamie Ogle, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. I am so excited to have you, and Kylie isn't able to join us, but... I know she was so thrilled to be able to interview you as well. So let's start out with something fun. How did you get into beekeeping and what do you love about it? Well, my fascination with the insect world probably started in third grade when my um, science book sort of went in depth into, into insects and then had this little section on like how to like collect bugs and like pin them to styrofoam and stuff. And I was like, well, this sounds cool. I'll do that. And so I I started doing that. And then people just started like sending me bugs from everywhere they went. Like, really? They would go on vacation and they'd stick a bug in like a film canister and they'd bring it back to me. And so I had this massive bug collection throughout grade school and even into high school until finally, well, I turned our playhouse, I, I commandeered it from my younger sisters and turned it into my bug laboratory. And so I had the walls were plastered and styrofoam and bugs. Then some, some mice got in and destroyed it. Anyway, that's a very oh, long no. story, but <laughs> it's fine. It was fine. It was time. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I sort of, I've always kind of thought they were cool um, and wanted to be a beekeeper because I just thought it would be cool to have live insects. And um, and yeah, it was probably eight years ago, my husband surprised me for Christmas with some um, beehives and all the equipment. And so I kind of got into it then. And it's, it's amazing. They're so fascinating and just their whole like colony structure and their social, just the way they are with each other and doing their dances and communicating. And, and it's so calming to be out there in the bee yard with everything humming around you. And yeah, it's just cool. Plus honey, you know, it's just a great bonus. Plus honey. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That is so neat. I definitely had an insect stage when I was a kid as well. I never got the proper pins for like um, pinning insects, but I loved them. I loved watching the um, the documentaries about bees and ants and different kinds of insects and their life cycles and things like that. It's so fascinating. Bees are unique with that colony that they have and the way their little social structure is so so precise. Yeah. Yeah. They're really fun to watch. Well, I love the tagline for your stories on your website, Good Rebels, Deep Faith. So can you tell us about how the theme of rebels worked its way into your story signature? Yeah. Um, I um, Just early on in my, in my writing um, career, when I was just trying to figure out like, like what kind of stories am I going to write? Like what, what do I love? What stories move me? And um, just kind of thinking about like, okay, what are my favorite stories and what are my favorite movies and those kinds of things and like what themes kind of run through them all. And, you know, that was, you know, Braveheart and Gladiator and Pride and Prejudice and um, Nacho Libre. 
and <laughs> like, okay, how, how, how do those kind of go together? What are the common themes in those stories? They don't seem very common, but when you look at them, um, they all kind of contain rebels in a way and rebels who are not just rebellious to be, you know, jerks or something. Um, they are really, you know, pushing back against corruption or whatever it is. And they're, they are rebels for a cause bigger than themselves. They're not rebelling um, in a way that is because of something that they want. They're doing it for the good of other people. They are, you know, rebelling for freedom or um, love and um, mm-hmm. helping other people. So those are the sort of the stories I like to call them good rebels because it's it's not a selfish rebellion. It's it's for a greater cause. And so those were the stories that sort of resonated with me. And you know, like. You know, you've got Robin Hood and, and all those other stories that I've always loved since I was a kid. But then when you take that sort of theme and then you look at church history, church history is so full of these um, courageous men and women who stood up against corrupt empires or pagan ways of life and stood for light and hope and you know mm-hmm. sort of courageous in that way because of their faith. And so those yeah. two things kind of come together in my stories. I like that because sometimes I feel like our culture can, especially maybe in the Christian culture, there's a focus on, you know, you don't want to rebel against God, of course, Mm -hmm. obviously. Yes, yes. But And when you're a child, you don't want to rebel against your parents because they're wiser than you. In general, they know much better than you. But as you get older, there are times when you need to observe what the status quo is and think, you know, this could use a little rebellion because that definitely needs to change. And I love how you talk about, yeah, all the great heroes of the faith almost were rebelling against, like you say, either corrupt empires or uh, pagan religions, or in some cases, corruption in the church and mm-hmm. that needed needed a change. And and yeah, it's it can be hard to stand up like that, but it's not it's not just for your own gain. It's it's for someone else's good that you're going to rebel like this. So I love that theme actually. That's that's really cool. Well, as a homeschool mom, how do you think being a writer affects your approach as a teacher? Well, it definitely affects it in terms of being tired. Um, I, <laughs> I try to, no, it's okay. I, I write before the kids wake up. So I'm up writing from like between 4.30 and 5 every morning, trying to get that part in before I start the school day with the kids. So It is dedication um, that brings us these stories. It is something, I don't know craziness. Um, (laughs) But as far as like actual teaching, I think it helps because writing is so much rewriting. You know, you're writing a line and then you're going back and like, okay, that wasn't clear. How can I fix that and make it work? How can I make this clear? How can I make my audience understand what I'm trying to get across here? And so when you have three little kids who are, you know, learn in very different ways you might explain something to one child and, oh, yes, they get it right away with that explanation. And then you try to use that explanation with another child and they're looking at you with this, you know, blank look of confusion. Like, okay, let me, let me edit that. Let, let's, let me try to find a new way to make this clear. Let me try to find a different way. And just kind of rephrasing and rephrasing until their faces light up like, oh, yes, I get that way. I get that mm-hmm. explanation. Yeah, I wouldn't have necessarily thought of that, but that's that's a cool approach, you know, a cool skill that writing gives you, as you say, it is so much rewriting. And then it just teaches you how to communicate, I guess, and how to communicate in different ways. So 
That is really, really neat. I wish it kind of worked with, you know, just talking to, you know, you can't always, you know, it works with teaching. You can go back and be like, oh, well, let me rephrase that. It doesn't always work out that well with just talking in general to having conversations. You can't be like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> Forget I said that. <laughs> right. You don't get to edit as you speak in normal conversation. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. We think of writing as being the most permanent form of communication because it gets published, you know, it can last for years. And yet there's so much editing that goes on behind the scenes. Maybe mm -hmm. everyday conversation is the most permanent. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us or perhaps something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? Um, something that I've been pondering a lot recently is, um, just the idea of, of dependence on God. And, you know, as I've been writing and, and rewriting this second book a lot, I've just been kind of thinking about, um, John 7, 37 to 38, when, when Jesus said, or on the last day of the feast, I'll just read it. The great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this feast was the Feast of Booths of Tabernacles when the Jewish people were called to remember the wandering in the desert and how God led them and provided manna and water until they arrived in the promised land. And that feast sort of ends with this um, ceremony of water where the priest draws water out of the pool of Siloam and pours it, brings it back to the, to the temple and um, pours it into a bowl is just a symbol of their continued dependence on God. You know, it doesn't end just because God brought them to the promised land. Um, it They are continually relying on God, depending on God for everything continually. And so this, this feast is going on every year to just remind them of that. And, um, and then when Jesus' invitation to come and drink, it's not like a one and done, you know, it's a continually moment by moment getting into the word and praying and um, just relying on him and the Holy Spirit to then fill us and then we can pour out um, as conduits. And so, um, yeah, just writing and, you know, sometimes you can just kind of tuck your head and like, oh, I just got to plow through this and do this. And you forget, I forget to cut, just cover it in prayer and depend on God for every word and paragraph and things. And I don't know, I've just been thinking a lot about that and just refocusing my dependence on God daily for, for all of that so that my outpouring is not of myself. It is the Holy Spirit in me. So yeah, that's, that's just beautiful. Something I've been pondering lately. For sure. And it's honestly kind of encouraging to think that it's not just a one time and done thing that, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you're saved and then God fills you with his spirit and then that's it. You know, you run, run the race with what you've got. It's like we continually get filled and restored and, and our fountains get refreshed as it were so that, so that these rivers can pour out, you know, to other people through, through writing, you know, through teaching, through whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just that the outpouring is not is not of ourselves. Then we don't have to feel this pressure of like, oh, I have to do all this right, or I have to do do the all the things. I mean, we do want to do the right thing, but it's not the pressure to do to pour out all this stuff is not on us because it's pouring out because of the Holy Spirit that is continually in us and refreshing us. Exactly. 
Yeah, it takes the pressure off us. It's not about our Mm -hmm. performance. It's about what he's doing. Yeah, for sure. Which is, frankly, so much more powerful than what we would be doing anyway. Oh, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, let's go ahead and dive into talking about this latest book you've written, Of Love and Treason. I'll go ahead and read the back cover copy for our listeners, and uh, then we'll dive into some other questions. Valentine defies the emperor and becomes a hero, and the most wanted man in the empire. Compelled by his faith, he has nothing to lose until a chance encounter with the daughter of a Roman jailer changes everything. Rome, AD 270. In the wake of the emperor's marriage ban, rumors swirl that there is one man brave enough to perform wedding ceremonies in secret. A public notarius and leader of an underground church, Valentine believes the emperor's edict unjust and risks his own life for the sake of his convictions. But as his fame grows, so do fears for his safety. Iris, the daughter of a Roman jailer, believes regaining her sight will ease the mounting troubles at home. Her last hope rests in searching out Valentine and his church, but the danger of associating with people labeled a threat to the empire is great. Still, as Iris's new friends lead her to faith in God, Iris is drawn to Valentine and they both begin to hope for a future together beyond the treacherous empire. But when a past debt and a staggering betrayal collide, Valentine, Iris, and everyone they love must fight for their lives and wrestle with trusting a God who can restore sight, yet does not always keep his followers from peril. So we have ancient Rome and the early church, the perfect setup for dangerous adventure and deep themes. Also, we seem to have a well-known historical figure at the forefront. So did you learn anything surprising about St. Valentine as you were researching for this book? Yes. (laughs) All of it. Um, I sort of wrote this book starting from this point of like, I think Valentine's Day is dumb and commercial and and I'm just going to research, like, where did this even come from? And so I started, I started researching the story and, you know, all these, we just have these little snippets of, you know, really snippets of kind of legend that's been passed down. There's nothing really hard and fast written by him or around his time. But what I saw was just... Um, just courage. And, and I was just captivated by the story and I wanted the novel. So I started looking around for a novel or the the movie that someone had to have made. Right. And I couldn't find anything. And so I just kind of went deeper and deeper into the research of like, okay, we have this man who um, is, is marrying people against the emperor's, you know, edict or ban. And like, how does that play? Like, what does that look like in the culture? Like, why is this important? Why is this story? Um, why is the story lasted so long when, when we don't have like hard and fast evidence that he was, he was really there, you know? So just setting Valentine and these legends against the culture of Rome at the time was just really interesting in the story so much fuller and really just kind of figuring out who he was because some of the legends say like, oh, he's a doctor. And some of the legends said he was a church leader. And then other ones are like, well, he's marrying people legally. So in order to do that, you have to be someone working in the legal in the legal realm of like a contract, basically a contract lawyer, uh, where you're drawing up these contracts of one family with the other and the dowry and how that works and the transfer of, you know, goods and things like that. So I sort of, I had to make him a public notarius and, and a pastor by night. So that was really interesting trying to figure out like, okay, how could he legally marry people if he's a church leader? Because, you know, in our day and age, we'd like, oh yeah, pastors, they, 
they do that. Like that's their job. You exactly. Know? We associate marriage with religion. With religion. But back then it wasn't like that. It was more of a, a legal contract and religion played, you know, a, a ritualistic part in it, but it was mostly, you know, you'd go to the, to the pagan temples and leave an offering, but you had the contract. Just ask a blessing on the marriage, but. Yeah. So that was sort of an interesting kind of twist to the story that I wasn't expecting, but but makes sense in terms of the culture and things. So, Absolutely. Honestly, I hadn't heard anything. That was something that got skipped right over in Roman history about an emperor banning legal marriages. And that was kind of an interesting thing for the church to oppose as well, or, you know, Valentine as a pastor in the church to oppose. Again, looking back at history, we don't have any remnants of this actual edict. You know, there aren't like, oh, yes, we have a copy of it right here. Um, it's just sort of uh, a story that's been passed down and which is would have been a really big deal then. Um, people in the military were not allowed to marry just because they they thought it was bad for soldiers' morale, being away from their children, their families, their wives and all that. So they wouldn't allow them to marry. So they would be, you know, kind of recklessly brave in battle. And then we have this story that, well, he bans it. Well, it's already sort of banned. So why now? Why this? And so looking at the, you know, they're in the middle of a of a war situation at this time. They're not doing so awesome. And so you can kind of imagine like, okay, well, what if he passed a ban so that he could raise a bigger army so that there's no way these men can sort of get out of military service by getting married. And so that's sort of the direction I took the story just sort of the logic of like what they did and like, okay, then maybe what if this happened? And Yeah, there's so much interesting history that kind of gets lost and just we get the bits and pieces. But when you, you know, really dive deep into what the culture was like, you can you can kind of see how things might fit. But that's, that's really cool. Kind of a, a difficult thing to research, but it gives your imagination a, a lot of room to work. Yeah. Now, I love how in the New Testament, there are some jailers with pretty interesting experiences. And you have a heroine who is the daughter of a Roman jailer. So how does that shape Iris's life? Yeah, so that was fun to write and imagine like, you know, you have this man who is, you know, a military man and then now has, because of an injury, he's he's a jailer. And he's, you know, kind of, he's a single parent raising a, a girl. And so what is what is her life like because of that? And so she sort of gets to gets to run a little bit wild and is independent sort of because her father is a little neglectful on one hand, but also kind of forces her to soldier up and and move on and and do something. So she's fun. She gets to, she has a job, even though she's, she's blind. That was sort of a thing to kind of look at in the cultural setting too. And we have sight impaired people today and they're, you know, they, there's lots of resources and schools and everything like that now. And back then it, it was viewed as a curse. And you can even kind of see mm-hmm. that in the Bible where the man who's born blind and they're like, oh, what sin did they commit to do this? And that was sort of the culture in Rome as well. Like they looked at her as someone or her father, her family is someone like, okay, well, what sin did they commit against the gods? Why would the gods curse her like that? She must be cursed. And so she sort of has this stigma on her that she's not as good as anyone else or, you know, people ignore her. Or, so she's sort of struggling with that. And then the, the Christian side of this is um, there's no major Christian persecution at this time. It's just sort of if you get caught, you might be you know persecuted or imprisoned or maybe sold to a slave market or something. But there's no like they're not trying to hunt them down mm. right now. 
But because she's the daughter of a Roman jailer, because there were persecutions, you know, in the last 10 years, her her view of Christians are like, oh, well, the Christians keep my father at the jail. Like he, the, they are, keep him away from mm. me. Like I, I don't get my father because he's always at the jail, like dealing with them kind of a thing. And so she sort of has a negative view of them until she meets Valentine and realizes, okay, like maybe they're not as bad as I always thought. And they sort of strike up a friendship there. And that sort of hits off the story into a totally different trajectory because they're both sort of influencing each other's lives. That's, I like that bringing in kind of two things that, you know, with her being the daughter of a jailer who is too busy to raise her, but also she's someone who struggles with blindness and is viewed by almost everyone in her culture, except the Christians, as it turns out, as someone who's cursed. That gives her an interesting foundation to pull from through the story. So yeah, I, I'm liking this couple. I think they're going to be pretty cool together. <laughs> <laughs> I liked them too. They were fun. Well, as you were researching ancient Rome for this book, did you run across any surprising facts? I mean, we've already kind of discussed the marriage ban and things like that, but was there anything that just kind of stood out to you as, oh, wow, that's so strange? So I'd written this book in several different ways. You know, I'd started like, okay, well, maybe Valentine was a doctor. And so I'd started writing like that. And they're like, nope, that doesn't work. And so then I I created this this family where Valentine's best friend is a doctor. And so they kind of you know, we can pull in those legends of Valentine being a doctor because he's running around with his his best friend who is one. And so I created this family that that Valentine sort of um, inter- interacts with. The, they host his church in their house. And, um, and so I wrote this whole book and then I stumbled across this, um, this bit of information about how Valentine had these, this family was good friends with him. They were, you know, wealthy merchants and hosted church in their house. And, um, oh yes. And because of their, their status of being wealthier, they were able to help Christians in times of persecution. Oh. So like I'd written this whole fa- this family and like, oh yeah, they're, and then, so I had, you know, the father, mother, and they had three sons. And then the historical family that I just stumbled upon at the end of writing this book was a father, a mother, and two sons. And so I just like, okay, well, this third one will be fictional, <laughs> but it was just kind of neat that it all was like exactly what I had written. I just needed to change their names. But like, I didn't have to change the story at all. And so like, I kind of mentioned that in the author's note at the end of the story, just more about this family and kind of what happens to them. It was just kind of a crazy thing that I'd I'd written it and then just stumbled across this thing that was like, oh yeah, that's, that's true. That's actually true. Valentine did have a wealthy family supporting him. That is awesome. Isn't it cool how God works like that? You know, it's almost like he's, he gave you the idea before you knew it existed, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like, well, here, just just give him this wealthy family. And then, you know, the historical record corroborates it afterwards. Uh, I, I think that might be might be evidence of, of the king meddling in our business. I, I love how that happens sometimes. For sure. Yeah, that was that was kind of fun to see that happen. Oh, that's neat. And so you were just able to use their actual names from history and and explore some of their story. That's awesome. Well, we were discussing before we got on that you've written in a few different time periods. So what's next for your writing? So the book I'm working on now, it takes place shortly after Of Love and Treason in a different part of the Roman Empire. And it is the story of St. Nicholas. We get some oh, carryover wow. characters from Of Love and Treason. They kind of pop in and you can see what they've been up to 
Um, and that's that's been really fun. Oh, so much fun. So it'll be a standalone, but we get but for readers who have read the first novel, you get to, you know, kind of catch up with some of your old friends. So that's awesome. I bet it's been fun researching St. Nicholas as well. And so different from what we think and how there's, you know, two St. Nicholases really hundreds of years apart and their stories have been kind of smushed together over time into one person. And so it was kind of fun oh, wow. to peel those apart and find like, okay, the stories that I'm really working with are these ones and then set on the turquoise coast of, of Turkey. And so you have the ocean and the kind of more Mediterranean feel. And that's been really fun to write with. Oh, I bet. I can't wait for that one to come out. But for now, of love and treason gets to have its day. But that's super exciting. <laughs> for our listeners, Jamie is offering a copy of her latest novel of love and treason. So if you want to enter to that giveaway, you can visit our website, historicalbookworm.com and click on the giveaways tab. You will also find the link to the giveaway in the show notes for this episode. And Jamie, where can our listeners connect more with you? Easiest place to go is probably my website. It's jamieogle.com. There's links to join my um, newsletter list. You can get a free um, novelette there. Pretty active on Instagram and Facebook probably more than anywhere else. But yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been It's been a blast talking with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been super fun. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.